Welcome to another Newton & Co podcast for Eye for the Light. I'm here with my co-host, David Newton. David, hi, how are you? Hi, Chris. I'm very well, thank you. Good to be here again. Uh, how are you? Yeah, I've just had an exciting weekend, so I'm feeling very relaxed and happy. Fabulous. Well, yeah. to continue the excitement, we've got uh, a very interesting guest today, a very young female wildlife photographer. There are not so many young female wildlife photographers around. So Rachel Bigsby, thank you very much for joining us. Um, we're, we're excited about this. I think it's going to be very interesting uh, learning from you and learning about you. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Pleasure. Now I'm going to let Chris lead off with his first question. Okay, so you're a wildlife photographer. Where did the passion for wildlife come from? That came from my granddad. Um, so I spent an awful lot of my childhood uh, with my granddad out in the wild. He was a keen fisherman and an avid naturalist, and we would always go bird watching together. And all of my earliest memories with nature were with him by my side, um, particularly in the bluebell season. And growing up together on the coast, we would spend a lot of time uh, at several different coastal reserves, looking at wading birds and seabirds. And uh, when he passed away, I carried on my ornithological exploration using his very binoculars until I got my um, my own pair later on in my life and then I suppose in my teens uh, the passion for nature just grew and grew and grew I was in the scouts from the age of six years old until 23 years old so more or less my entire life so far and I would spend every single weekend outdoors just really strengthening that bond that I had with wildlife and with the environment. So are birds your passion? Is that what you like to focus on? Absolutely, most? yeah. Birds are my passion. Birds and badgers. Um, but seabirds are the biggest passion and certainly something that I specialise in now. At what point was it that you went from just appreciating wildlife to wanting to capture it on film slash digital medium? Around... 13, 14, 15 years old, I've always been really arty and creative. I loved painting when I was younger and I would always paint seascapes because there's something about the sea that has just always mesmerised me. I mean, I've never lived more than two miles away from the sea. It's always been a part of my day-to-day -day life and I would always paint these seascapes and then somewhere down the line and I would love to be able to go back in time and figure out where it was, I got my hands on a camera and, um, and I remember from the age of 13, 14, I had a bridge camera and I would always just photograph the same sunset at the same beach every single day. And uh, then one day an unfamiliar bird caught my eye and uh, I was a bit frustrated because at that age I thought I knew what all the birds were. I thought I'd had the best education from my granddad, but I didn't know what this one was. And, uh, and I went home and I did my research and discovered that it was a northern fulmer. And when you put that into your search engine, the first thing that comes up is relative of the albatross. And you can imagine as a young girl, someone who's obsessed by the sea already, to then learn that there's a relative of the albatross on my doorstep. It just completely changed the whole trajectory of, uh, of what, what I did next. And as much as I adore photography and I love to photograph seabirds and wildlife, the camera is simply just a tool to capture the connection that I feel and the wildlife always comes first. So wildlife for you, it must be a lot about observation then. Oh, very much so. And uh, particularly with the seabirds, there is a lot of observation that has to take place because they're so erratic and so much is unknown about them. And the key to photographing them really lies in spending a good chunk of time observing them first. 
And, and I really enjoy the fact that I can observe birds without feeling the need to photograph them as well. I'm, I would say I'm incredibly particular about what I want to photograph and many times I'll be out and if I just don't feel like the shot's going to work I just don't lift the camera up but I still have a really good time watching the wildlife and I'm so pleased that I've been able to strike the balance between the two whereas I've not lost the interest in the photography or lost the interest in the bird watching the two marry hand in hand really nicely when it works and when it doesn't work I still appreciate the two just as much. You you said you were very arty and the camera is just a tool for maybe capturing a feeling or, a, or a, an experience. Do you therefore consider yourself like in a traditional wildlife photographer mould or are you an artistic photographer who shoots wildlife? Oh, that's such a good question. I've never really thought about that before. And um, I would lean towards the latter just because I try to break some boundaries of my photographs and perhaps not always intentionally. And it certainly didn't happen intentionally to begin with. It wasn't my aim you know, of course, it's the aim to take a unique photo, but I didn't set out trying to break these creative moulds and do something differently. Um, but I would probably lean towards the latter just because I am a wildlife photographer in the sense that I photograph wildlife, but I don't photograph all wildlife. So perhaps that takes me away from the traditional mould of a wildlife photographer. How do you find that works? I know when we're going to get on to some of this, you've done some work for the BBC and you've done some filming. Um, and we're definitely going to talk about the differences in photography and filming in a little bit. But how do you find that works, your creative artistic approach for something like BBC, which is much more traditional in its normal approach to wildlife? So uh, with the BBC, it's normally it's always the filming that I take part in. So what they're looking for is the story and the excitement and the passion and connection that you have and more often than not that's full it's been with former and it's been with badger so two species that are really close to my heart and um and it hasn't focused so heavily on how I photograph them and the shots that I get where I see it come up as a slight issue from time to time and um, is where I am a contributing photographer for some charities and magazines in the UK um, and outside of the UK and sometimes uh, or all of the time they are very keen to have a normal photograph of wildlife which um I don't have many of <laughs> so that's the only time when uh, when it it could be a slight hiccup but it doesn't happen all too often I'm quite fortunate that people do really enjoy to see something different but every now and again these magazines like to rein me in so I can contribute something that is uh, more usable let's say for the magazine than perhaps some of my other work can be interesting yeah. I mean I, I asked the question because I come from a more wildlife background. I was a marine biologist, but I was a picture editor for a wildlife picture library. And from that perspective, the images were as they were shot. They were creative, clearly, but they weren't artistic in that sense, in that they followed a very traditional photography pattern. And it's interesting to hear how the market is or is not changing from your perspective as someone doing that now. Mm, I would say it's absolutely not changing just from the year or two that I've been doing it and seeing which which of my images get published, which make the cut, which make the sales. And I actually can't think of a single one of my unique sort of shots, my creative shots, what I'm most known for. I don't, not, don't think a single one has ever made any of those magazines or publications We'll come back to this kind of artistic photography a little bit later on, but just to start from where you started with a camera, you're self-taught. How did you go through that learning process and when did you turn pro? Uh, lots of tears and tantrums, I think, is how I went through the learning process. Um, I am a very hands-on learner. 
it was never going to work for me to read how to do it online or even to watch a video online. I just had to pick it up and do it myself. And um, and that was fine because it was a hobby. You know, I had nothing to lose by experimenting and, and messing up some shots and nailing other shots. It was all part of the process and part of the fun. As long as my camera was in my hand, you know, that was, that was all I wanted to do on the weekends or after school. And um, so it was very much a case of trial and error. Began with a bridge camera, which is nice and straightforward, very simple. Everything's laid out. Most of the settings were already preset for you. It was just really a case of point and shoot like they're designed for. And then I decided that I'd outgrown the camera and the passion for photography was really starting to take off and perhaps it was something I wanted to do more seriously so I got my very first job and uh, I worked every single hour that I possibly could and I got my pay packet on Christmas Eve um, and I crossed over from the shop where I worked straight into another shop and I got my hands on the Nikon D3300 and um, with a with kit lenses and you know at the time that was my first proper camera and my goodness was it difficult <laughs> that was a big challenge you know finding my way around a DSLR after using a bridge camera for so many years and and I remember going straight in and trying to use manual because that's what everyone said you know if you're a proper photographer you're using manual and all the pictures were just black or they were blurry and it just took such a long time but as I say it was still fun and I still enjoyed it and then later on down the line I'd stepped up again much later down the line I stepped up to a full frame DSLR and uh, it wasn't such a disaster to get used to I taught myself quite a lot over the years but um but it's still quite a big stepping stone and uh, to be quite honest with you I don't know if I would consider myself pro just yet photography certainly isn't my main income and that is how I would personally define a professional photographer uh, would be to have your income from photography and that's not the case for me just yet I still very much work uh, another job as my bread and butter and then um, trying my hardest to make the photography into a career um, at the same time. Just on your your first camera and, and subsequent and it's indicative of you being so young but successful have you ever shot film? I um, have a few times, you know, I did a photography course. I actually dropped out halfway through because I didn't like it. And, <laughs> but, uh, and, I, and I did, and I really enjoyed uh, developing the film. I think that was, that was lovely. And something that I, I still don't do is print my work. And, I, and of course, I've seen my work printed when I've sold some things. And it's such a nice feeling. And I can only imagine, you know, wouldn't it be great if, if uh, I'm sure I'll do it at some point, to photograph wildlife on film and then watch it develop. And then you've gone full circle with the whole process, haven't you? I think it's fascinating that someone who's so interested in the artistic side, I think it's an opportunity for you to experiment with some film. I'm actually going back to film this summer. Oh, this wow, summer okay. On a panoramic camera and a 5.4 camera, just because I love the experience and it slows you down. Probably not so easy with bird photography, but there are various options that would open up to you. Yeah, and it's worth exploring. Definitely absolutely I was just going to say worth exploring um yeah we're in and even just uh to do a comparison of the two it would just be something as a little passion project I'd be very interested to see I know it, it's not film at all but something that I photograph in black and white rather than photographing color and then convert it into black and white because I'm quite keen to now sort of work with the mindset of how would how could I photograph this image? How would it work if I were to photograph it in black and white in camera rather than photograph to colour and convert? Because there's so much more to consider. So I think that's probably next on my list of things to experiment with. Well, you should be able to set that up in the camera so that you yeah. can actually see it straight away. But the interesting thing, of course, is your raw file is still in colour. 
So you've got that immediate comparison. So you're young and you're very much in the early stages of your career, but you already seem to have achieved prominent recognition and have done some high profile jobs or worked with some high profile clients. Tell us how you achieve so much in such a little time. Oh, it's just not in my nature for that not to be the case. I, uh, I work hundreds of hours a week. I literally never stop when I'm cooking I'm sending emails I'm when I'm driving that's when I come up with my best ideas and um, I just ask I just ask I just shoot my shot I just put the ideas out there I just never stop and where it began was 2018 and I got I hate to say it but headhunted by BBC Earth for a new YouTube series that they were doing and it was called the science of cute and really it was aimed at younger people who had the skill for photography but didn't necessarily have any relevant qualifications or any relevant experience and you know I I fitted that box I ticked that box perfectly and uh, and I went off of them and we filmed badgers kingfishers woodpeckers puffins for this BBC Earth YouTube series and I had a great time and I sort of very lightly presented it and introduced a segment and did some voiceover. And just being able to put that on my CV was just the biggest stepping stone that I needed. And in between that, you know, there were odd interviews and, and maybe calendar features and things that I'd gone for. But the next real big thing was during lockdown, um, I got made redundant, as a lot of people did. And with the spare time and living on the coast, I picked up the camera and I went out and I just started documenting the northern formers that were on the cliffs here and the film was picked up by BBC Springwatch as a passionate person piece and it was a lovely six and a half minute piece on BBC Two and again really good on the CV and it was just a case of finding these little stepping stones that could build up the CV that when I approached bigger organizations bigger clients and had bigger ideas I had a little bit more backing behind me at the time so uh, of course the BBC Earth was incredible and it certainly did start the ball rolling um, but I think for anyone who's listening and trying to do the same thing uh, there's plenty of other ways that you could do that as well so I'd like to stress although that's an incredible opportunity I do feel confident that I would be in the exact same place as I am now without having that job and um, just so people don't feel disheartened that that's the only way in. Since old farts like us started in photography that's not you that's us um, <laughs> the internet has moved from showing your images through websites to also involve social media how do you assess the role of social media versus website in what you do and which one is more relevant to the type of work that you're trying to do um social media all the way it pains me to say it because I'm really not a big fan however I would not have been found by BBC Earth if it wasn't for my Instagram I would not have been found by Springwatch if it wasn't for my Instagram I would not have been found by Wild Isles if it wasn't for my Instagram and the same with Nikon uh, you know all of the big big players in my career so far have found me via Instagram and that is just the nature of the beast now that's just how it works and then um, I, I have my website and I like to take an awful lot of time and pride in my website and have more of a more aesthetically pleasing layout than social media because I really dislike how it makes your images look and of course I dislike how it compresses them the one thing that I'm struggling with with social media now is um keeping up with all of the trends which of course means that your work gets seen by more people and that's the whole idea of it that you can grow your platform and and bring more people and potential work in and because it's very much now focused on the reels and things like that which for some wildlife photographers is really possible but for myself 
itself, it just isn't quite possible. And uh, that's the only downfall that I'm saying social media is having for me at the moment. And um, so I give 50-50 to each, but um, there is no secret in the fact that I, I definitely wouldn't be where I am without so social media. You mentioned uh, Nikon finding you. You're now a, a Nikon creator. Yes. Um, how has that helped you promote yourself or develop as a photographer opportunities it's provided so on and so oh my goodness it's changed my life it has changed my life yesterday was my one year anniversary as a nikon creator and this morning i signed my contract to renew for another 12 months which is just was the best start to my day ever i've never in my whole life met a brand or a person or an organization or a company that value my time and my work quite as much as Nikon do and it's something that I say to them all the time I hate to bring it back to money but of course we all have to pay the rent and to survive and do different things and the thing about Nikon that always leaves me speechless every single time is that they will pay you for every single second that you're doing something for them and as a creative and as someone that barely makes any money from photography at the moment and someone that's trying the hardest to make that happen I could never be more grateful for just having being able to work with a brand that understand and appreciate you and then also everything that they do to go out of their way to try and enhance your career even when it comes down to the Nikon meetups that they throw and then much much bigger things like sending me all the way to the Arctic to test out the Z9 camera on polar bears or sending me to Norway to test out some new lenses on muskox and putting me forward to speak at the photography show like a really big platform for me and speaking at other local events and uh, just taking part in lots of podcasts and collaborative shoots and you know I've just finished filming a really big shoot for Nikon Europe about a new software that's coming out so all of the little steps that they do to put your name and your face to the front to keep on building your portfolio and your confidence and and sort of get getting your name out there more and um, I'm just so grateful for and then of course having access to some of the best photographic equipment in the world and uh, more or less on tap if you get in there quick enough and uh, you know this year I've had the 600 mil f4 with me more or less from April until this morning when I very sadly had to take it back to UPS but then I can create images that have the quality and the sharpness and and you know the potential and the possibility um that I couldn't perhaps access without having their equipment and um, so oh my goodness I just I am so grateful for everything Nikon have done for me and it and it has changed my life it absolutely has it's interesting with your passion for birds that they sent you to the Arctic to photograph mammals. How did well, you get on I with that? Put forward the idea. Uh, was it was that because own... you wanted to photograph polar bears or you just wanted to go to the Arctic? Oh, well, obviously both, but of course the polar bears. Um, it was one of those things, you know, I thought I'd never, at this, at this age, for the foreseeable, there's no way I can get myself to the Arctic and there's no way I can photograph polar bears. But what I could do perhaps is think of a really cool idea and a pitch and send it to Nikon and see if we can do something together. And with a little bit of tweaking, sure enough, they did. It was a yes. And uh, they sent me out to Svalbard uh, on a mission to put the flagship Z9 to the ultimate test. And there was more of a backstory going on as well of how I'm so used to photographing birds. And now suddenly I'm faced with the biggest mammal that I've ever photographed and not necessarily out of my comfort zone, but something that I have no experience in so far. And um, so we'll be releasing a film about that towards the end of the year. And I'm really excited for everyone to see that and see the epic adventure that I was on. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Wildlife photography is a tough sector to earn a living from. As, a, as someone who's starting out in it and is having some success, what kind of advice would you give to other people who want to get into it? From a income point of view or just in well, general? From, yeah, presumably your objective is to turn pro and mm. you're well on the way to that. So you're going through that learning process. You, you're a self-taught photographer. You've kind of pushed yourself out there. You're getting some traction now. You must have learned things along the way, a sort of advice you could give to other people. It's a really good question. And, I, and I'm definitely still in the process of learning myself. Having those relationships with the brands that will pay for your time and your creative skill and your images uh, makes a very big difference. Um, of course, there's also different ways that you can do it by collaborating with brands in exchange for putting things on social media or perhaps for getting equipment like bags and tripods free of charge because whilst that won't make you money, it will save you money and it's still equipment that you need. Um, I also find... I do quite well with selling prints, but from speaking to some other of my contemporaries, they don't do so well. So I think that one's quite difficult. Um, and then again, selling stories and uh, images to different wildlife magazines has also been uh, quite a good thing to do. I'm going to pick up on that because that's that's very interesting. Your Particularly your documentary work, and I'm thinking very much of your avian influenza story. Do you find there's a lot of interest in that kind of work, in those kind of stories? Or is it very much you hammer on 100 doors before eventually one says, oh, yeah, OK, I'll print it? Um, I don't have enough experience to comment wholeheartedly on that just yet. Um, but what I did find with the avian flu is that it was something I was working on as my own personal project anyway. It was something I felt was a very serious topic that needed to be spoken about. And at the time there was virtually no media coverage on it whatsoever. And then it got picked up by National Geographic because they were looking for something similar at the same time. So uh, we found each other quite nicely and 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 it worked really easily. Um, and I think that the documentaries and the conservation stories are certainly where um, the interest is. And um, because, you know, in the sixth mass extinction, it's what people need to know and hear about perhaps in comparison to just pretty pictures and a pretty story. But having said that, there is still an awful lot of interest around my very pretty badges and, uh, and nice things that people want to hear about that too. Following on from that, you've kind of led into it beautifully. Obviously, you work with nature, so you're very aware of the impact that we are having as a species on the rest of the species on the planet. Do you think photography has a role, can affect change? Uh, and if so, how? Absolutely. I am a huge believer in using your camera as a storytelling tool to connect a global audience to the forefront of a social or environmental crisis or disaster, or not necessarily a bad thing, a positive story, just using your camera to shed light. And Avian Flu was the first time I dabbled in documentary photography. But the most important thing that it taught me is that what I was seeing could have just stayed with me, particularly in Shetland. There were quite a few days that I was the only person in the entire world that was stood there witnessing the disease unfolding and the impact it was having and the knock-on effect and, and all of the pain and suffering. I was the only one witnessing it. But because I took a photo of it and I put it online, 
thousands of people saw it too. And sure, they weren't there in the moment, but they still saw more than they would have if I didn't take the picture. And that's just me with a very small online following and, and a very small number of people to influence. And so, you know, if everyone were to do it and you were to all share these sorts of images, then the whole world would be able to see what's going on. And I think the importance to me with, with avian flu, it, although it's very, very tricky, I think with some conservation images, there's a direct action that you can take to prevent it from getting worse or raise money to make it better. But with avian flu, there isn't really that answer at the moment. But I suppose the images just made people more aware of what was going on. And, and at least that is better than knowing nothing at all, which really at the start of avian flu was the case. There was barely any coverage on it whatsoever. Um, so at least just through my images, more people got to know about it. And perhaps they took action themselves. Perhaps they joined the seabird group and donated money for PPE or or just became more mindful about their use on single use plastic or something like that along the line. I love your enthusiasm. We're a bit more tempered by <laughs> experience. Do you really think that the people who are engaging or seeing your pictures are engaging with the subjects or is this just a transitory thing? Is it just, oh yeah, that's not very nice. And then they move on. Okay, have you got any feel for whether people are actually getting really involved as a result of seeing your images? I would not be able to know if people are getting really involved. I think it's a tricky example, as I said, because there isn't really an awful lot that you can do to physically get involved. There isn't really a call to action that people can take. Um, but for me, you know, I, I'm, I'm more than happy that people were at least commenting. You know, the reaction was overwhelming. Just people saying I had no idea or this is really sad. And of course, saying this is really sad isn't going to save the world. But at least it would be on someone's mind and perhaps later down the line affects a decision that they might not otherwise take do you shoot video as well I don't I used to and um, when I started with the wildlife photography I believed just through what I'd read online and people that I've spoken to that the only way to make it was to be a wildlife filmmaker so I put my all into wildlife filmmaking at least two years I barely took a still but I just really, really didn't enjoy it. And I thought, what's the point in doing this if I don't enjoy it? So I reverted back to photography. And of course, I'm so pleased that I did. Um, but I have not filmed anything for probably two years now. Do you use moving images on your social media? No, but I should. Because as I mentioned earlier on, with the Instagram reels and the way that things are going, um, it would be in my best interest to do so. But I'm very much in the zone when I'm out of my camera, you know, and I think I would kick myself if I missed getting the shot because I was so focused on getting some film or video for an Instagram reel. Um, so I find it very, very difficult. When I said, you know, some, some photographers do a great job with their reels and, and perhaps with the badges, it's something that I could because they're more of a guaranteed subject. And I've been there for so many years that for now, at least, I feel like I've ticked off the, the shots that were really on, on, on my list. Um, but with the seabirds and those, you know, really unpredictable species, I just can't bring myself to just click out of the zone just to do something for social media. I'm going to pick up on those badges because I, I'm thinking it might lead to an interesting point. I'm assuming these badges, the set is quite local to you? Uh, it was until I moved away. It's about an hour away now, but it used to be about 10 or 15 minutes down the road. But in the grand scheme of things, it's still relatively local. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll deal with your, your earliest time with it, 10, 15 minutes down the road. How, how much of a benefit was that to you from a, just a revisiting perspective to be able to work on your pictures, come up with ideas, test them out, so on and so forth? What, you know, what, what benefits did they bring? I was there every single day. I was there every day. 
And there were lots of benefits in that because it allowed me to observe their behavior a lot more intensely than I would have done otherwise. You know, perhaps now, for example, I don't visit half as near as much as I used to. But when I lived nearby, I was there every single day. So I got to know the badgers. I got to know each one. I could, t- I can tell you each and every single one. They all look exactly the same to most, but I know each badger and some of them have names. Not that I like to endorse that, but for my own benefit, it was always handy to sort of know who's who. And, uh, and I could then understand their tolerance. I could understand which route some would take and which route some wouldn't. Um, if there, there were two badges that I found particularly more photogenic and more tolerant, so I could then understand what they were going to be doing at what time and I could set up my camera and myself to give myself the best chance of photographing them. And then, of course, with wildlife photography, probably 60% of the time I would come home empty-handed, but it didn't feel like such a blow because it was only down the road. And and then, of course, it gave me the chance to try and try and try again. So whereas at the start of the season, I could have been happy with my shots. I knew that I could be happier. So I just kept going and going and going and then hoping that those little magic moments would happen, which they did from time to time. And I think you're asking for so much of wildlife photography, so many factors that are completely out of your control, the behavior of a wild animal and then the weather. And then, you know, sometimes, especially on the seabird colonies, the timetables of the boats and the tides and that island closing times and all sorts so um the beauty of the badges and being able to revisit all the time was that I had more control and my chances were much greater of getting something than perhaps they would be in another situation and I'm assuming if you were there all the time you found maybe a steeper learning curve or a faster learning curve because you could try 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 again without that time loss yeah absolutely so um you know more it didn't take me too long to get to grips with it the very first year that I tried um I tried for the bluebell season and I got a wonderful shot and I was really fortunate it actually ended up in the country file calendar and it's the bluebell badger shot that then went on to promote wild isles and it very almost didn't happen and it was a, such a rainy May and uh, and every night I just sat there in the pouring rain and I was getting bitten to death by mosquitoes and nothing was happening the badgers weren't coming out and and you know in hindsight I can probably see that there might have been a few things I could have done to make it better but of course I didn't know any better at the time I was still learning myself and then fortunately really with a a few more days to go until the bluebell started to wilt that shot happened and then I spent the rest of the summer with them after that it became such an addiction it's so so exciting to see a badger in real life especially in this location with all of the photographic benefits that it's got and I would just be there every single night there was nothing in the world I wanted to do more than just sit with the badger so I think having that intensity I learned really really quickly and I learned about the species really quickly which was the most important thing for me and then at the same time just by sheer coincidence I actually ended up working freelance for Badger Trust which are the leading voice for badgers in England and Wales and I worked freelance for them as their digital marketing assistant for two two and a half years and then got thrown in the the deep end and learned so much more about badgers which really really benefited my photography and it's something that I now say to people you know really try and understand the behavior of your subject before you photograph it because the advantages that give you is just out of this world. Thinking about the seabirds photographing the seabirds viewpoint must be an issue especially if you're working with a a 600 mil lens in many places you're going to be on the cliff top looking down or you're going to be on a boat that's moving down below how do you set about finding a viewpoint that will allow you then to take the kind of images with that big lens that you're after 
and um, it's very much a trial and error process now when I started to photograph the seabirds as a hobby you know I wouldn't lose too much sleep over the times that it didn't happen but of course now I'm putting my all into making a career have to be much more calculated with what I'm doing and, and it's taken a few years to pick up on that so I work at four or five of the same seabird locations every single summer some have more benefits than others some also just aren't great for photographing other species so i've been able to now have a map in my head of if i want to photograph razorbills really well i can only do it at this island if i want to photograph shags really well i can only do it at this island and vice versa and um, colonies like bempton cliffs for example and um, i run a lot of workshops there i love bempton and i spend so much time there but photographically for the level where i'm at now i feel like I've kind of exhausted Bempton, but I also find it very tricky because you are always photographing down on them. However, now I know that I need to plan to go to Bempton when the wind is at a particular speed from a particular direction and the birds are lifted right up above the cliffs and I can photograph them at eye level. And that's very much why, if possible, I encourage people to land on islands and on colonies like the Farn Islands or Stoma or Lunga Island, because you can lie on your belly and photograph eye level with birds and then um, and, and get a really nice perspective instead, because it is a tricky one, you're right, even from a boat which I do an awful lot of the time you are still marginally pointing down on them what rather than just straight across the water maybe one something I'd like to do one day is uh, get myself in the water with a camera and photograph from that perspective too and definitely underwater going to the islands to photograph now is a little tricky with the avian flu with the bird flu so you say you encourage people to do it but there are very limited options at the moment I mean hopefully the bird flu will pass but uh, it's something we have to be mindful of, I think. Yeah, absolutely. As far as I'm aware, um, the Farn Islands are the only island that took the decision to close because of avian flu this year. And uh, when visiting any island anyway, of course, you have to be very considerate of all of the biosecurity measures. And they are all fantastic at getting people to check their bags to make sure there's no stowaways like mice that could get on there and devastate the populations. And even now, I mean, there are a few colonies I haven't been able to visit this year because I've been tied up elsewhere. Um, but just uh, disinfecting feet, you know, I was back on Bass Rock this year. I was the last person on Bass Rock before the avian flu crisis hit. That's where I first started documenting it. And uh, returning there this year, you now have to disinfect your feet. The boat is disinfected. Everything goes down on tarpaulin. The, the biosecurity measures are a lot higher than they would have been before, um, which is great. I mean, there's certainly no downside in that at all. Um, but as far as I know, um, all of the other seabird islands have been open this year and and it's it's a bit of a vicious cycle because of course while you absolutely must prioritize the avian flu and do anything that we can to protect the seabirds people still need to be able to go there and firstly financially support the island so that they can continue their conservation work and secondly just engage with the species themselves because how can you protect something you don't love fair point it's true, it's true. Yeah. we're going to take a little detour maybe somewhere that photography might be heading and get your views on it. AI seems to be a big buzzword and this I guess ties into something we were talking about earlier on. How do you feel about the encroachment of AI into photography? How do you see it impacting or do you wish it would just zap itself into a ball and disappear? 
I must admit, I do not know enough about it to possibly comment, but I, from someone that takes photos of wildlife, because I do it to capture that feeling and that emotion and everything that is going through my head and my heart at the time, I can't possibly understand why you would want an AI image because you lose out on all of that. But then for perhaps a photographer that's doing it because they want perfection in their image, uh, maybe that's where the benefit is. But personally, it's something that I won't be touching with a barge pole. I suspect you probably already do, though, without realising, because well, there's I think a lot of stuff in Photoshop that's AI. Yeah, yeah, with with Lightroom, you know, with the you know when you do the healing and it's got AI healing and things like that, and that certainly does. But of course, it's still not creating my overall image. It does lead into a follow up question, which is, you know, what role does digital, I'll say, manipulation play in your photography? Oh, it's something that I get asked all the time because everyone thinks I Photoshop my images and take the backgrounds out or something like that. Uh, it's one of those ones if I had a pound for every time someone asked me, we probably wouldn't be sat here talking about how I need to make money from photography. <laughs> um, I just use Lightroom Classic. That's all I use. I'm fortunate now that I taught myself a lot that with, you know, trying to avoid sounding arrogant, I can pretty much nail it in camera now. And there isn't really a lot I need to do. The, the most common thing that I do is denoise because where I'm shooting with my camera already overexposed, it does make the images quite noisy. But it's a sacrifice that I'm more than willing to take for the outcome. Not that I necessarily always recommend that to people, particularly in my workshops who want to try it. I try to encourage you to get an insurance shot before you end up with something really grainy and but creative. But there, there really isn't a lot I do. And, and of course, while some people are convinced that I do take out the backgrounds, Really, the only evidence that you need is to look at the competitions where my images have become a finalist because anyone that enters photography competitions knows how rigorous that judging process is. And, you know, even with the country file calendar is something as sort of basic as that when you compare it to bit much bigger, bigger competitions like Bird Photographer of the Year. Not only did they want the raw file of the winning image, but they wanted the two raw files that I took before and after that as well, just to prove that there was nothing going on. And, and it happens in every competition. And later down the line, I will be able to announce something rather exciting with the competition. And, uh, and you're more or less interrogated to prove that you've not done anything uh, to manipulate your image or Photoshop your image uh, for it to be awarded. So, um, you know, I can sleep easy at night knowing that that's the truth. <laughs> but th that's very interesting, because if we go right back to the start of our discussion, when you were talking about how difficult it is to get your images sold into magazines and things, and the part of the reason was the, the feeling that it wasn't the kind of the raw image. And yet you're telling us you don't do much manipulation to your images. Why do you think people are perceiving that you do? Um, I think touching on the magazine um, from the raw image point of view, I meant it more from the um, how, how could you say, you know, just a straightforward image of a wild of a wild animal doing a behavior. But mine are not straightforward whatsoever. M normally, you probably can't even tell what the species is when you first look at my image. Uh, so that is why the magazines aren't so appealed to it, because I suppose they want a very, very, very nice and well thought out postcard style shot to uh, right. promote the species rather than something that's really wacky and out there and uh, perhaps not everyone's cup of tea because they're of course thinking about selling the magazine but why people think that my images are manipulated is purely because of the white backgrounds and the black backgrounds sometimes and uh, for me you know it's something that I did accidentally and it's sort of become my signature style and it's so straightforward and I show everyone how to do it on my workshops and just because I tell someone how to do it it doesn't necessarily mean that they can execute it straight away. 
but it's just so straightforward uh, but um but yeah people think that i just take the backgrounds out which um <laughs> will always amuse me i'm 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 actually out of questions yeah i think i am too i think we've, we've covered ah. everything that we wanted to you sure you haven't I'm, got any questions left david well, you always okay, do have okay. one so, question so in our, in our in our notes uh when we when we write some notes we come up with some idea questions uh chris chris decided to write this time david's boring question about the younger you <laughs> without writing what the question is now given that you are still so young compared to us and still so fresh in the industry if you will still sort of forging your way as, as your career I'm going to turn the question around normally I'd ask you what advice you would give the younger you to that you think would have stood you in good stead but you might not be there yet so what advice have you been given what's the if you could think of one key bit of advice that you've been given that you would pass on to someone else there are two uh so there's a, a wildlife filmmaker called erin rainey that i really look up to so when i first started and i decided that this is the direction i wanted to go in i would sit with a pen and paper and i would skip forward to the credits of every david attenborough documentary or bbc production and i would write down the names of the producers the directors the cinema photographers you know the editors the, even the researchers i would write them all down and then I would contact them all and I would send out hundreds of emails. And most of the time, no one would ever reply. But every now and again, you got a good reply. Erin Rainey was one of the ones that she replied to me and she said, lift as you climb. And I've always loved that. And that very much speaks for the wildlife industry. And um, that when you're in need of a little bit of support or advice, you can more or less ask anyone that's already in that position. And I've not found anyone that's been unwilling to help and sort of lift as they climb and another came from a BBC producer called Giles Badger and I won't do this justice and I can't remember exactly what it was word for word but I remember going to him a few years ago and funnily enough we spoke about it a couple of months ago now and you know I was just a bit down in the dumps and feeling a bit defeated and looking for advice and I remember he said to me he said you know don't race to the top because you'll miss all of the things that you do on the way up there and uh, and like I said, I've not done it justice whatsoever, but um, but it was a wonderful quote that you said to me and one of those things that's really stuck in my head. And I certainly found myself taking my time a bit more. I do definitely have advice for my younger self and that would be just to have more confidence in my work. And um, like I do now, just don't be afraid to ask because asking has got me to where I am now because the worst that can happen is that people say no. And uh, it's just not in my nature not to try. So I would say to anyone, just give it a go because you've got nothing to lose. And what are your objectives for the next 10 years? Where do you want to be in 10 years time? I would love to know the answer to that. I have ideas of what I want to do. I, I wouldn't say I have an end goal. I'm still not entirely sure how I want to make a career out of photography. I have got lots of exciting workshops coming up. I will be heading back to the Arctic twice to run some photography expeditions. I'm also heading to Antarctica and I will soon be heading to the Falkland Islands and South Georgia. These are all spread over the next two years. Um, I would like to publish a book about a year photographing wildlife pole to pole. 
And I also have some really exciting talks coming up at the Outdoor Expo and, and some big events where I'll be sharing more of my adventures and stories. But the beauty of this industry, while sometimes it can be stressful not knowing where the next job or something's going to come from, things just crop up out of nowhere. And, and while you think, oh, I've not got anything planned for the next six months, before you know it, you could be jetting off somewhere to photograph the most exciting species you've ever wanted to. So it's very much a case of going with the flow and trusting that it will be okay and just pitching those wild ideas and hoping that they get picked up. And, and I'm going to pick that thread briefly with one final question. If there was one species that you could photograph, if I said to you, here's a pot of money, you can go anywhere and photograph any species, what would it be? Where would you uh, go? I would be off to the Falklands tonight. <laughs> Uh, albatross giant petrels penguins just more seabirds you know more so many people say to me well you should photograph something different and I will and I would love to don't get me wrong but it's just the seabirds you know there's just something about them that I will never ever be able to let go of and I would love to see giant petrels because they're essentially just a giant former I would love to see albatross I would love to photograph penguins and uh, and so many more things of course the polar bears probably would have been my answer until this point but uh, we're going back to things with wings which I think will be the story of my life <laughs> think things with wings I think that's a lovely yeah. point to, to wrap this up things with wings yes thank you very much Rachel it's it's lovely to see someone with a real passion for what they're doing and starting you know you're above the beginning but you're still very much in the early stages of your career and uh, you're making great strides so I hope that's really given some insight to other people who are feeling very much like how do I make it in photography it's inspiring as well it's, it's really nice to see someone so successful at such an early stage in their career and and also in such a challenging market wildlife photography being such a challenging market it's, it's wonderful to see and without this turning strangely sexist uh, really nice to see a female doing it as well because there's not enough of you we need oh, more you. we need more of you and and so you know more power to you thank uh, you lift as you climb I, well, I was just, and on that note, I was just going to say, I'm, uh, I'm always more than more than happy to give advice and help and answer questions to anyone who's probably listening to this in the same place that I was 10 years ago, and just repay all of the favours that I've been given by people who are in my space now. So I am more than ready to lift as you climb. So if anyone listening has any burning questions or looking for some advice, please do feel free to get in touch because I would love to help. That's great. We've talked to a lot of female photographers and so many of them are reticent to push themselves forward. I hope that listening to you, some of those female photographers can see that if they can actually do that, they'll make a huge difference to their career. Oh, I hope so. And, uh, and something that I would just like to add, and um, while I am absolutely more than aware that it's not the case for every industry and every walk of life, I certainly do find the wildlife photography community to be very inviting to female photographers, particularly young female photographers. So I wouldn't want any young female entering the wildlife photography community to think or expect that they're going to run into difficulties because of their sex or think that it's going to be a difficult environment to get into because of that, because because um, really and truly everyone is so down to earth and of course every now and again you'll encounter the odd hiccup or the odd person but but that is not just photography that's just life in general but I certainly wouldn't want that to put anyone off from trying and um, so just take take my word for it that it's all okay and we'd all be more than happy to have you here. <laughs> Great well thank you very much Rachel we'll leave you to your things with wings and thank you, thank you for your time today. <laughs> thank you, thank you both for having me it's been great.